I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I am certainly of one mind with Paul, the the apostle, um, who said that Christ came to rescue us from the power of sin and death, and that at some level that's the most succinct way of talking about what our religion is about and why it matters. That there's um, there's a human condition that can be understood metaphorically as being enslaved to the cosmic powers of sin and death. And what Jesus did was show us a way out, give us a way out of that enslavement. And there are lots of different ways of coming at the question of salvation, but this is mine. And, um, and so what you're going to get is what makes sense to me. So not to forestall the conversation, but to say here is where I'm at in working through this material in a way that makes sense to me. And certainly in Lent, as we take up our cross and follow Jesus metaphorically, we are symbolically engaging in that titanic conflict of powers between the power of God and the power of sin and death. And of course, we know the end of the story that Christ conquers those powers in the resurrection. And yet we we recapitulate that movement every year by saying at some level, even though Christ's uh, act was once and for all and cosmic, there is an obligation on the part of those who follow Christ to put ourselves in his footsteps and follow that journey in some way. And there's a, there's a, there are endless pages written on, on how that works and whether it's a question of what we, how hard we have to work to work out our salvation or whether it's a free gift of grace, whether we are incapable of working out our own salvation, whether we are totally depraved or not. And there's a, there's a whole theological conversation that I'm, I'm going to skip over. Um, we haven't got the time, number one. But number two, because I think there are fundamental problems with the operating assumptions of that whole conversation that are now getting so impossible to ignore that we have to go back to the building blocks and rebuild our theology from scratch. I believe we are in a time as theologically critical as the Reformation and as the other great, um, even the early church, the time when theology needs to be reformulated. And so the building blocks, of course, are the power of sin and death, the, the, the salvation of Christ, the fact that it's grace, that it's the power of God that works in us, and these are the basic building blocks. But when we look at where we've come to, it's, uh, though many people outside the church and within it see the conversation around sin as a deeply problematic conversation. Number one, the word sin usually means all the best stuff in life. Uh, you know, you serve me a piece of chocolate, I'll say, oh, that's sinful, and we'll laugh, and I'll eat the chocolate, right? And it, sin, chocolate, sex, that's the other one that is definitely sinful, which is only the best thing ever. Uh, <laughs> so anything that feels good and that you want is sinful, and that has been much of the Christian conversation around it, which means that, oh, and it's even worse than that because it's not just doing these things, it's thinking about them and wanting them that is sinful. So, you know, if I look at a woman with lust in my eye, I've already sinned. Well, that's it. I'm sunk. Sunk. Right? And so that conversation around sin is, I am totally depraved, and I need to be ashamed of my sin, and I am going to be punished for sure. 
And so Jesus offers me a way out of the punishment and a way to be freed of that shame. And so I am saved and washed in the blood of Jesus. And so now I'm free from sin, except in real life, when I'm baptized and I'm washed clean of sin, I somehow manage to go on sinning. And so here I am in the same position I was prior to my baptism. So what do I do the early church solution to that problem and wait until my deathbed to get baptized, wash all the sins away, and then I don't have a chance to do anything bad <laughs> unless the nurse is really cute. And then, you know, and you, you see that the knots and the tangles that we get into, and we do get tangled, and I'm preaching within a week of Jean Vanier being discovered as a sexual predator. Saint Jean Vanier, the founder of L'Arche. And, and he's just one more great hero of the faith that has been discovered to have a dark secret sin. And this is what makes atheists. This, this is the story that makes atheists. Christians talk about sin, and of course you're supposed to make better choices, and look at those Christians, even the heroic ones, the ones people look up to, the great pastors, preachers, televangelists, saints, and look at them doing the big sins, the ones that are really disgusting and shameful and horrible. And so that's it. That the whole conversation is, is rendered moot in the, in the secular mind. And so one of the challenges for the church is, do we really have anything to say? And if we do, what is it? And my conclusion is, the whole way we put it together is part of the problem. And I think the problem is that we understand sin in terms of shame and punishment. And even within the Christian theological conversation, we have taken for granted that sin is shameful and ought to be punished. And I don't think that was the message of Jesus. This is the building blocks. Back to the base, base principles. What was Jesus all about? Sin is bad. It's not like sin is okay. Sin is the problem, or a problem. Um, and being freed from it is the goal. This is the deepest yearning of our hearts, whether Christian or not. I mean, uh, my dear friend Bill likes to say sin is the one provable Christian doctrine. Just look. We know we live in a sinful world. It's really clear. And we want to be rescued from sin. But it's easier to, to be passionate about sin when it's someone else's sin against me. That's when I get angry about it. That's when I go online and write in all caps. Uh, those horrible sinners, and you're part of the problem. You're a racist and a sexist, and you're you know, on the wrong side of history. And, you know, and these are all secular people, by the way, yelling in all caps about the sinfulness of the world. Um, and so as I, as I watch the online conversation, as it devolves into more and more yelling and violence and so forth, I see the pre-Christian world where, you know, the, in, in many secular minds, getting Christianity will get rid of the shame and the guilt and the, that, that whole tangle that, that the Christian conversation has gotten us into, and then everything will be great. Well, in fact, sin doesn't go anywhere. And judgment and punishment and shame don't go anywhere because now, you know, we still want to punish the sinners and we still want to shame the sinners. Of course, when the sinners are those people, not when the sinners are me. Well, you know, there's good parts to me too. I'm not perfect. But you don't need to shame me. You don't need to punish me. And that is the tyranny of sin. We can't escape it. We can't escape it by throwing out religion. 
we can't escape it by trying harder. And this is, this is another part of the thread that I want to pull out, that, that another assumption underlying both the Christian and the secular conversation is that the solution to sin is trying harder not to sin. When in fact, we know psychologically that just pushes it somewhere else in the psyche. And we in fact deny the sin and we see it in others instead of in ourselves. Young talks about the shadow side and, and, and how the sins that make us the most angry, the ones we're most anxious about in our own psyche. And so again, just trying harder isn't the solution. So again, here's that building block of grace that must fit in there somehow. So for me, the way that Christ rescues us from the power of sin is in showing this way forward, which is, in a sense, through the sin. Those of you who are at Ash Wednesday talked about, uh, heard me talk about my understanding of how we have to move through death in order to get to life, in the sense that once we deal with our fear of dying, we can get on with living. And I think the same is true of the sinfulness. And so we come to this, again, this classic Christian word of repentance. Repentance not in the sense of, I'm so ashamed and I hope I'm not punished, but repentance in the sense of, I know that I am causing damage both to myself and those around me, and from a compassionate perspective, I am sorry for that damage and that suffering. And I'm sorry for my part in it. Again, not because I'm ashamed. We're all in the same boat. We're all part of it. We are all sinners. We are all contributing to the problem. But I am sorry for my part in contributing to the problem and I want God to help me to do better. But the only way out is through. So in Lent, we do self-examination. We look at the ways that we remain sinners. Baptized people all, upstanding citizens, good people, yes, and sinners, 100%. Not as a theoretical construct, not because Adam and Eve ate the apple, because we were born this way. We were born self-centered, we were born afraid, and we lash out, and we protect ourselves, and we do damage to others and to ourselves. That basic, basic understanding of sin, which is just the sense that we're causing harm. We're causing harm to ourselves, and we're causing harm to others, and we can't stop causing harm unless we start by saying, what am I doing? And then go a level beyond that and say, why? do I do those things? Sometimes you need the help of a spiritual director or a counselor to get at that. But then you say, why am I doing these things? What can I do to deal with my anxiety, my fear, my anger, so that I can grow into a new place, so that I won't stop doing these, those things, but I'll catch myself quicker? Henry Nouwen, still a great saint, hopefully. <laughs> Nobody's found anything on him yet. Uh, uh, wrote that at the end of his life, having been an active Christian for, for decades and decades and decades, he couldn't say he was a better person than when he started. But he could say that he knew himself a whole lot better and was a lot less um, fooled about his, the state of his own soul. And I can relate. I can't say I'm a better person than I was when I was 20. But I can say I know myself a lot better and I can call my own BS a lot faster. And, and that does make me closer to God. That does mean that I have come somewhere in my spiritual journey. 
but it's, it's not that I am any less of a sinner. I just know myself better and I can catch myself more quickly. And so I become less a part of the problem than I was. And I'm less than I would have been had I not done the work. And there's still work for me to do. So every Lent, I come back, I ask myself, how am I still participating in the sin as an individual, but also as part of the society? How am I still participating in patriarchy and sexism and racism and, and, um, and economic systems of injustice and all the rest of it? And how can I become more aware of that and ask God to give me the strength to do what I don't have the strength to do myself, which is to say no? And so I'll, I'll finish with the, the analogy of, um, of Alcoholics Anonymous. I think that the dynamic of sin is very much the dynamic of addiction. It's the same, same process. We cling on to things because we're scared, because we're unhappy, we want the hurt to stop. And so we grab onto things and we hang onto them. And if it's not a bottle, it's something. All of us here are addicts, whatever it is. We're addicted to probably more than one thing. If you count uh, habits and ways of relating and, uh, and things that we do with our time and so forth, there are, there are addictions that, are, that have control over us and that enslave us. And so what I'm talking about is the difference between a recovering alcoholic and a dry drunk. If you're familiar with the concept of a dry drunk, it's an alcoholic that stopped drinking by force of will, but still has the same personality driving them, and is still just as enslaved to the addiction as they were when they were drinking. They just have dropped the drinking part. And I think, as Christians, the danger is for us becoming dry drunks. We don't look like sinners. We can't look like sinners, so we make sure we don't look like sinners. But the sin continues to control us from the inside, even though we've, we've shut down the, the, out, the exterior behaviors to a certain degree, and yet they will leak out. And so you have Jean Vanier. So you have the, the high-profile clergy who blow up in spectacular fashion because they're just jamming it down. They're dry drunks. They haven't really internalized the gospel because the gospel says you're still an alcoholic. You're still an addict. You're in recovery. That's what we're doing right here. Lent, but all the time. So I, I, I will finish, I promise, with the last story, my favorite quote from my predecessor, Peter Davison. Peter was in the office and he got a call um, from someone who wanted to ream him out because the church was full of hypocrites. It was a cold call. Someone needed to call the church and tell the church they were full of hypocrites. Peter, without missing a beat, said, come on down, we could use another one. That's a recovering alcoholic. That's not a dry drunk. A dry drunk says, I'm not an alcoholic. Right? We are sinners. We are in recovery. We come, we, we put ourselves through the process, we pick up the cross, we follow Jesus because we know our need of it, because we know we need the power of God to give us the motivation that we don't otherwise have, to give us the insight we don't otherwise have. And so by God's grace, we follow where Christ has led and we allow Christ to carry us through doors that we are unable to get through on our own. And in so doing, we may not become better people in a sense that we reach new moral plateaus, but we become more aware of ourselves and we become faster to catch our own BS and we become more able to act from compassion than from fear and from shame. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.